I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now all over the place, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back, everybody. Um, We have a fun show today. We're covering all kinds of things, kind of a grab bag of everything going on in the world. So um, we're going to start with Ben actually talking about doctors um, deputizing the DOJ to transition their kids, because that's always a great topic and something wonderful to discuss. Um, I'm going to talk about the perennial classic of how we learn nothing, this time the COVID-19 edition. Um, Emily's going to talk about Me Too turning five, and we're going to round it out with Josh talking about our strategy toward Ukraine. Hopefully we can get through this episode without anyone firing nuclear weapons. Um, That will be the goal. So with that, we'll turn it over to Ben. Well, what we have here is uh, yet another effort to follow the playbook of the National School Board Association, as everyone recalls, sicking the DOJ or attempting to sick the DOJ, the FBI, and other authorities on those who would dare question in that case, draconian COVID regulations or indoctrination in racial Marxism, that is critical race theory in schools. Here you have the doctors following this playbook, particularly the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Children's Hospital Association, which are now going on the offensive, seeking to collude with the DOJ to suppress, stifle, and chill those who would dare question quote-unquote, gender-affirming care. So they wrote this letter to the DOJ, a public letter, and they call for, essentially here, they they claim that there are these attacks rooted in an international campaign of disinformation where a few high-profile users on social media share false and misleading information targeting individuals, physicians, and hospitals, resulting in a rapid escalation of threats, harassment, and disruption of care across multiple jurisdictions. To my knowledge, they don't actually cite any substantial list of purported attacks on hospitals, doctors, et cetera. Obviously, attacks which we would abhor if they existed. Um, they they cite one bomb threat, for example, in this letter. But it, again, seems to follow the exact template of the National School Board Association letter, where when you drill down into the list of cases that they cited as representing threats to school boards, actually fell apart under examination. So what are they calling on the DOJ to do? on top of calling for social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, to clamp down on misinformation, which they do in their letter. They call for Merrick Garland to, quote, investigate the organizations, individuals, and entities coordinating, provoking, and carrying out bomb threats and threats of personal violence against children's hospitals and physicians across the U.S. So this, of course, comes in the wake of massive blowback against the idea that doctors ought to try to transition children, uh, particularly in the wake of, for example, Matt Walsh's expose of the goings-on at Vanderbilt University, which really exposed that this is a massive money-making operation on top of all of the other abhorrent aspects of promoting childhood transition, which are now going on at schools as well, and of course, with the help of doctors here. Uh, This also comes amid libs of TikTok, that account being stifled, I don't know how many times and kicked off Twitter for holding up a window to this very kind of uh, gender identity insanity. Um, So basically what you see here is another ideological and also material racket that is under threat. And here you have the organized medical establishment going on the offensive and seeking not just regulation, but actually deputizing the DOJ to protect 
that racket while also, of course, calling for chilling free speech on social media as well. And this follows, of course, in an effort to uh, combat climate misinformation, so-called election misinformation. And then, of course, there was the medical misinformation racket around COVID-19 as well. And by the way, that, of course, has manifested itself in a number of disturbing ways, including this AB 2098 bill in California, which was signed into law, which would allow state medical boards to punish physicians who spread, quote unquote, disinformation or misinformation regarding COVID-19 and its treatment options. In fact, leading medical schools like the University of Chicago are actually now out offering classes on combating medical misinformation. So I think you're going to see this play out in every single sphere of power. But it's particularly disturbing, as we've talked about before, when it comes to medicine and science, not the science, but actual science, when you have this assault on dissenting views. And, and there's a great thread that Chris Rufo put together on it. I'll just quote a little bit from it briefly, and then we can jump into a conversation on it. But he goes, this is now the left's playbook. Last year, National School Board Association, DOJ, FBI worked together to label parents who oppose CRT domestic terrorists. They want to stifle dissent, suppress speech, and criminalize opposition. And he goes, the morality of the situation is blindingly clear. Threatening hospitals is wrong. Censoring journalists is wrong. Criminalizing political opposition is wrong. Surgically removing a child's genitalia is wrong. I think that's probably a winning issue. That's probably like an 80% plus winning issue among the American people. If Republicans, for example, would recognize that, that would be something. And he says, if gender affirming care is so good, and this is a critical point, the activists and doctors who promote it and profit from it should defend their practices in the realm of public opinion. In a democracy, everyone gets to weigh in on important issues, not just regime-approved apparatchiks. So I think this is a really important space to watch. The corruption of the sciences and, and medicine in particular in terms of both the wokeism, like racially rationing, COVID treatment, for example, as well as the silencing of dissenting views is literally going to get people killed. And it's undermining further our First Amendment while we have government authorities potentially colluding here with outside groups. So I think, you know, kind of to open up the conversation, I think this reflects there's nothing the regime won't do when it comes to stifling and suppressing dissent on any issue that would dare threaten its power. Uh, but one positive aspect of this is that I think the backlash against gender affirming care that's resulted in this counter offensive speaks to the power of activists outside the political system to actually move mountains here. Uh, again, Republicans are MIA. Where are they? I don't know. Maybe you all have some ideas about that. But thank God for those on the outside who are actually exposing this terrible racket with devastating societal consequences. I think there's a Democrat in Kansas that's flip-flopping on this right now, on women's sports right now. But the, the quick thought that I have after everything Ben laid out is simply that this is why, if you think back on Michael Anton's Flight 93 election, um, the cockpit is so important uh, in the sort of post-Wilsonian age of 2022, when you're talking about the DOJ being, uh, the levers of the DOJ being able to be pulled in ways that have such dramatic effects for every single small town corner of this country. Um, it it's mind-boggling and terrifying, and it's what the left doesn't understand about conservative politics going forward. They're freaking out about Herschel Walker allegedly paying his mistress to have an abortion back in 2009 this week. And it reminded me a lot, actually, kind of of what happened when Alabama, vote, Alabama voters said that they were going to vote for Roy Moore, despite all of the allegations against him, because Doug Jones supported abortion. I mean, this is like getting to the point where the president of the United States um, is in charge of a vast personnel that has an incredible 
incredible effect at the flick of a pen um, on the, the culture, the health, uh, because of the way we define these words now of the entire country. It's maddening and insane that this comes down to the, the DOJ and that the DOJ is in a position to have power like this, just like the education department had under President Obama. And I, I think it's just very telling that this is where conservative politics is going, because if you want to prevent things like this from happening, um, you know, imperfect populist candidates are going to be a lot more appealing no matter what the left says. Go ahead, Rachel. Okay, no, I, 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 I was going to say, I'm not really sure how much I have to add, Ben. That was a very helpful kind of laying out of what is going on here. I mean, to me, this story, I think, is best viewed as a kind of like a macro higher level. I guess it's just another data point and kind of the roiling realization, if you will, um, by many on the right, the kind of coming to terms with the fact that the Department of Justice is uh, is just no longer a friend. I mean, like it arguably at this point is potentially not even salvageable. I mean, this is kind of the crux, I think, of Julie Kelly's recent talk at NatCon 3. Um, you know, I, obviously the federal government needs a law enforcement apparatus. So, I mean, it's not like we're going to just completely do away with it, but, um, you know, serious, serious, serious reforms have to be made. I mean, and the other thing obviously is that this can only be viewed as kind of just another kind of string of, of the DOJ just directly getting involved in the culture war. I mean, hold aside just kind of like the the Carter Page, uh, Trump, Russiagate stuff. I hold all of that aside for a moment. It's very, it's very hard to do, obviously. The DOJ is kind of at the epicenter of that entire imbroglio. But even just focusing on the bread and butter kind of civilizational culture war issues, you know, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, it, it was just about a year ago. And it was early October 2021, obviously, when Merrick Garland went to war against parents revolting against critical race theory, ra racist indoctrination all across the country. So, you know, to me, stories like this really just have to be viewed in, in unison like that. And, you know, once again, to kind of go back to, uh, you know, one of the many recurring leitmotifs in this podcast, the left has has no compunctions whatsoever about its view and its use of the federal and indeed the state and local law enforcement apparatuses in this country as a tool to reward their friends and punish their enemies. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm just I'm still waiting for for someone the right to kind of come to terms with the fact that some level of kind of tit for tat reciprocity is what we have to do the next time that we wield any kind of a meaningful degree of power. Yeah, I think, you know, this whole episode goes to show how interconnected all of these things are, because it's one thing for the American Medical, Medical Association to have these ridiculous views on gender transition, but it's completely another for them to say it out loud, demand that it discussion be banned on social media and expect it to happen. <laughs> and they know that it will. And so I think this is kind of what we're dealing with. And I would also point out, I think Ben alluded to it um, when, when you were talking about the California law that for the, I don't know if this is the first time this has ever happened, but you have a state saying it will not enforce custody agreements of another state if the issue is around gender transition. That is just an unconscionable precedent that we're setting here. So it's not just that, no, you can't discuss these things in public. It's that you cannot uh, have any independent choice about how you raise your child um, and states are going to enforce against other states in managing that. So we are, we are, I think, definitely sort of tipping over into a, a, like a dystopian universe uh, in many ways. I hate, you know, we overuse the term, but I think this is kind of where we are. But I think on the topic of um, this sort of elite control um, and uh, of of society, of the culture, of of no one ever being punished for anything that happens. I think my topic segues very clearly into this with the news that um, Eco Health Alliance, which I know we've discussed Eco Health Alliance and the role of Peter Dozak 
on this podcast before, but EcoHealth Alliance was uh, the, the organization that received money from the NIH that funneled hundreds of thousands of dollars um, from various U.S. government grants to the now infamous Wuhan Institute of Virology, which many consider, and I think it's incredibly considered at this point, to be the source of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, they were working very specifically on um, the how viruses transmit from animals to humans, um, gain of function research, so capably called out a number of times in the Senate uh, by Senator Rand Paul. Um, and, you know, of all the oversight that's been done, right, you've had oversight in the Senate and in the House, you've had numerous media uh, reporting on the role of DAZAC and the Eco Health Alliance and gain of function research to the extent that it's fairly common knowledge right now. Well, it was announced yesterday that he is now getting another $600,000 grant by Anthony Fauci's agency. And it's just, there's a million different ways that we could talk about this story. But the first thing that occurred to me when I saw this news, and the reason I wanted to bring it up is because I'm constantly asked on you know panels and interviews and whatever, why is populism surging, right? Why is populism surging across the West? Well, this is why, okay? When it's so blatant that these people screwed up to a just titanic degree, to, to a global degree, you know, chapter in verse how covid not only killed people but set kids years behind in schooling you know raised the rate of alcoholism in the united states it's just systemic societal change from this covid-19 pandemic we know one of the sources of this was peter dazak eco health alliance anthony fauci's mismanagement of naid or intentional you know management of it in this way and yet we're rewarding this person. Instead of punishing them, they are being rewarded. And this is why populism, one of the reasons, right, that as a meta-narrative, populism is surging across the West. Because again and again and again, elites lead this country into chaos, and they are not punished for it. They are rewarded for it. Uh, there's a oft-used quote in D.C. that uh, I won't use the profane version of it, but it's something to the extent of excrement flows uphill. And that is exactly what we're dealing with, but on a societal level. So if you want to know why people are just fed up and sick of it and willing to elect candidates like Donald Trump and Herschel Walker and some anyone they think is going to walk in and kick the beehive and not care, this is why. Because the hive itself is so dysfunctional and so rotten to the core. So after that rant, I'll open it up. <laughs> Nobody was moved by Rachel. <laughs> I sucked all the rage out of the panel. <laughs> no, I think really what just happened is that you said it all. Um, it's <laughs> it's stunning. Um, and that's really, I mean, from my perspective, I don't understand. Like, it seems wrong to me that this is, even for all of the crazy things that happen in this country, that happen in American politics, and that have especially happened in the last, you know, half decade, this seems possible it, i mean it just it's it's an impossible level of arrogance but it actually makes complete sense when you think about it because anthony fauci peter daszak in the past couple of years what they have demonstrated is an, a complete lack of shame like fauci uh, Fauci, he, he's misleading, but then he's not even like concerned about, he'll talk to the New York Times about it, right? Like he, he's fine. Uh, like it, when he was misleading about masks, what, what was it like a year later, he's happy to tell the New York Times that's exactly what he did. Um, and it, it just speaks to the, the shameless 
um, the, the shameless superiority complex that our unelected bureaucrats have. And this is the exact same thing basically we just talked about with the DOJ and Ben segment, that we have this, this vast government of unelected bureaucrats who stay in these positions for their entire careers, wield incredible power that nobody ever checks. And that's exactly how they think that it should be. It is exactly how they think the country should be governed. Um, and, and so that's the best reaction I can muster to this story, which again, it seems impossible, but guess I guess it makes perfect sense. Uh, one thing that people talked about for a little while, this is, a, this is like a talking point that some were talking about. And when it comes to COVID, the the new Steve Dace, Dan Horowitz book, um, I think I think they provocatively titled it The Fourth Reich or something like that, if I'm, if I'm remembering the, the title and, and, the, and the book cover correctly, kind of draped in, in, in that red hue that we all kind of became accustomed to when we saw uh, the senile doddering dolt from Delaware give uh, his his red drenched speech in Philadelphia about a month, month and a half ago or so. Anyway, um, in the new Dace Horowitz book, they basically they call for kind of a truth and reconciliation commission. And I think back to this essay that Leo Leibovitz wrote at Tablet Magazine. I'm trying to remember when Leo wrote that piece. I don't know. Maybe it was within the past year or so. Um, maybe like eight to ten months ago or something like that. And he basically, I, if I'm remembering the title correctly, he said, if you're wrong, you have to apologize. Because sometimes when there's just like a glaring, glaring, glaring mess up, um, you know, an apology is actually like a very good thing. Like you seek to atone for your sins. I mean, as the case may be, you are actually re recording this, uh, you know, a mere number of hours away from Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish year, which is the Jewish day of atonement. <laughs> so maybe it's kind of top of mind for me, I guess, but it seems to kind of like play quite well here. I mean, you know, Anthony Fauci, Deborah Burks, and kind of the entirety of what Ron DeSantis calls the biomedical security state, they should atone for their sins. You know, they should atone for the fact that they wrecked lives, that they literally destroyed human beings' lives for multiple years. And lest you think that I'm being hyperbolic here, you know, I mean, like I, I work from home for better for us. So, I mean, my life was, was comparatively destroyed considerably less than others. Not so much the people who had to close their jobs, the small business owners, not so much the children who, you know, who missed out on, on years of, of elementary school education, of socializing with their classmates, of kind of playing t-ball with their kids on the baseball field, you know, like basic kind of life growing up experiences. I mean, you know, I'm thankful that I went through this COVID BS in my early 30s and not when I was a kid. I mean, like, who knows how we all would have ended up, obviously. And, and we're not going to know how these children who went through this ended up for a while. So, um, you know, I, I think that the one of the better ways to ultimately go through this is from some sort of kind of Truth and Reconciliation Commission style system. I'm not particularly optimistic that we're going to get it, I think, to to put it mildly. Um, but, you know, if, if there's one thing that I would like to see from you know, our purported elders and our purported people who deign to us and, and know better in the, the ruling class, you know, it would be kind of just uh, any attempt at kind of an admission of guilt or an atonement for the way that they have just wrecked countless lives and really just destroyed large swaths of this country and this great civilization over the past few years. So I would say the reason that there will be no atonement here, or the indication is that there will be no atonement is that they deem their efforts to be a success. They're not grading themselves clearly on the same metrics that we would. And there's been nothing to indicate to them that they did fail and that they ought to atone and that there actually ought to be real culpability for it. The money continues to flow to these agencies, zero heads rolled. You know, besides a few exchanges with a Rand Paul here or there, that's about it in the way of public confrontation. 
with these individuals and scrutiny. So why would we expect anything but for them to continue to dole out grants like these for the very most culpable parties to continue to be rewarded when there has been no punishment for it, no penalty for it? It's the same thing. We can look at analogous efforts across the entire regime, across the administrative state, certainly when it comes to the FBI and DOJ and a whole slew of other agencies as well. Failure, as we see it, they view as a success if it means protecting themselves and growing their power. And I think one way to just think about this entire theme is that from start to finish, and I guess maybe it's probably not finished yet because who knows what will come in the future, but the coronavirus, the response to the coronavirus, its creation, every single layer of it is a case study in the regime. They were funding something risky and dangerous that they shouldn't have been, and there was supposed to be a moratorium on it. They were doing so colluding with our worst adversary, communist China. The consequences of it led to, for them, a massive increase in their power and authority and usurpation of our rights, trotting upon our rights, destroying liberty and justice in a million different ways, exploiting a crisis in whole or in part of their own creation. There's been no oversight or accountability about it. They've covered up every single aspect of it, no punishment, and now you have a reward at the end of it. So I think this is a perfect case study in how the regime operates. And it, again, as we go back to, until and unless there is real justice with real teeth for the worst actors, it just guarantees infinitely worse to come. And any Republican worth their salt, any politician worth their salt, uh, has to be able to articulate that they understand this and that they plan on doing something about it or they don't deserve anyone's vote. And, and I think that ought to be, it's a very simple standard. Do you get it or not? And if you don't get it and you don't plan on having any kind of response to it, then you should not be a representative in this country. Well, everyone, time flies when you're having fun. Um, and I regret to inform you, it has been five long years since the Me Too movement kicked off in early October of 2017. <laughs> so all time seems to blend together now that we've had uh, more than two years of a pandemic. But at the same time, I was actually pretty shocked to think back and realize it was it had been five years of the Me Too movement. And since that, um, I, I mean, I, I think everyone he remembers what it was like for the first year of the Me Too movement, and let alone the first six months. Uh, remember, this kicked off with a New York Times report on Harvey Weinstein. That was also, importantly, a story about how the press had been controlled, manipulated, manipulated and bought off by Weinstein for years. Um, and that's where, you know, the movement started to really get uh, traction is because it, it, it started as something that had actually populist appeal, you could say mass populist appeal. This was something that tapped into bipartisan frustrations. Um, and then after about six months careened into this, this weird, um, I don't know, like juggernaut, self-perpetuating juggernaut where the snowball was just rolling down the hill and becoming so big that it was crushing people like Aziz Ansari who had uh, behaved, let's say, ungentlemanly on a date and was uh, then publicly accused of sexual, sexual assault. 
insult for his ungentlemanly behavior. This was fertile ground for both the left and the right, for the left to say the patriarchy uh, had not yet been sufficiently undercut, and for the right to say, uh, actually, uh, there's there's something of a matriarchy that is uh, causing some of these these problems, and and truly traditional norms um, would have prevented, or or a, maybe a healthy uh, recognition of traditional norms would have prevented this from uh, ever becoming so painful for so many women. And here we are five years later, Johnny Depp uh, beat Amber Heard as the New York Times, uh, I, sh I shouldn't say beat in this context, beat legally beat Amber Heard um, in a um, in, in the, the defamation lawsuit, which was huge news this summer, and a lot of people said it was the death knell for the Me Too movement. Um, but the New York Times, in this sort of uh, long retrospective, is ultimately ambivalent on the movement it's reporting on Weinstein that helped kick off. Um, ambivalent because, you know, for, for a lot of feminist reasons, it quotes a lot of sort of hardcore feminists who are still lamenting the power of the patriarchy. Um, and, and at the same time, time, I think uh, how what the movement became is where a lot of this ambivalence is rooted in. Um, we have a spate of books that have hit shelves in the last year um, from people who are center-left feminists, Louise Perry, Christine Emba, uh, even Bridget, Bridget Phetasy re recently wrote a piece called I Regret Being a Slut. Um, BuzzFeed had that piece that was called Gen Z is rethinking sex positivity just about a year ago. I've mentioned it here many times because I really thought it was groundbreaking. And this is coming on the heels of Me Too. You have young women um, who are themselves saying the norms of the sexual revolution uh, that you know really led to a lot of the Me Too problems are not healthy in and of themselves and not just because of the Me Too issues, but because of other ones. So I'll kick it over to the group when we look back on the last five years, um, and especially those first couple of years of the Me Too movement, that first, those first six months where it's like crazy and your head was spinning every single day to see what person, what institution of some particular industry was about to be taken down. Um, it, it seemed like it was a, also just this huge explosion of cancel culture and how these digital technologies can can fuel cancel culture and ruin lives, whether they're celebrities or regular people. Um, so, so when you guys look back and realize that we were five years uh, after the that Weinstein story just broke everything wide open, um, what's your evaluation of the Me Too movement? I mean, I think ultimately, you know, your summation is is correct in the sense that I think it did bring to light some new perspectives. It brought to light a lot of these issues that had lived underground for a really long time, but ultimately it was a movement that sort of ate itself, right? It made itself not credible because it just kept using the mob, right? To go after people for just not credible allegations. And, and you know, when you, you use a mob to go after someone and then the bottom of the argument falls out when it comes out that, you know, it was, um, you know, misunderstanding or it was something not nearly reaching the level of sexual assault, you dilute the issue. You dilute the issue of sexual assault and also you undermine your own credibility. And I think that's a lot of what happened there. Not to say that some good things, you know, didn't come out of it, but I do think it has kicked off, Emily, to your point, this broader conversation around the consequences of the sexual revolution and and kind of how women want to see themselves in society. And I think that's interesting to watch and it's good. I think it's taking place, I think, at a slightly younger level than the elder millennial set that I reside in. It's more Gen Z sort of rethinking these things. Um, but they're coming to grips, I think, with what um, the left has parroted for a long time about 
what women should want and how women should feel about certain things and what empowerment really means. And I'm very interested to see how the pendulum has swung so far. It's beginning to swing back in the other direction. Um, and that's, I don't know that it has the cultural hold that the Me Too movement did at the upper levels, but I do see it burbling, gurgling up from sort of the bottom and then younger Gen Z. So I think that's pretty interesting. I want to hear the men talk. About Josh, it. you want to go first? Or <laughs> yes. I, I mean, look, I, I guess when I think about Me Too, um, so, uh, you know, this reaches its culmination in 2017. I can like remember it vividly because this is actually kind of the stint that I did at the law firm when I was at Kirkland Ellis. This was this kind of overlap of my 16, 17 months or however long my particularly glorious stint was at the, um, in big law. And, you know, obviously being in like a very like corporate, but big law setting. I mean, you know, like we felt um, me too, obviously. I mean, not so much, um, you know, by like the day-to-day activities, but in kind of like the corporate missives and the emails and the various training and the modules and all the online things that we had to kind of attend and do. So I, I, I kind of remembered very well. And, you know, 20, uh, I, I guess that was, this was also around the time um, uh, when there was a, when there was a special election in Alabama with Roy Moore, obviously, and the groping. So I kind of have these like very vivid images in my mind. It kind of feels like a long time ago. It, it, it almost, I don't want to say it feels like a half a lifetime ago, that would be overstating it. But so much has happened in the world since then. I mean, I guess the Me Too movement kind of went for it all. It kind of threw a tail Mary pass in the Brett Kavanaugh nomination, right? I mean, that was kind of the Me Too movement trying to operationalize itself and take itself to the next level and kind of go down as kind of like a Martin Luther King-esque civil rights struggle. And it failed. Uh, it, it demonstrably and, and clearly failed. Brett Kavanaugh's on the Supreme Court. No one ended up particularly buying the Christine Blasey Ford. That itself is like another day that is just like totally etched in my memory. Just said so it's like a personal aside. I mean, that, that that was September 2018. So that was, that was the next year after I was in, I was after I was in Big Law. I was clerking for Judge Ho on the Fifth Circuit, and I you know I remember being glued to my television. And I don't know if y'all remember, like that morning after Christine Blasey Ford's testimony, you know, I was looking around to my clerks and like my friends texting whatever i was like oh my god like kavanaugh's dumb like they're gonna have to pull the nom and then he came out there that afternoon and you know he did like the revenge for the clintons thing and you know kavanaugh's been like an okay justice since then nothing to write home about but um the me too movement failed i mean to me that was clearly it's overstepping like at that particular that particular day kind of sealed its fate the only other thing to note is uh, Black Lives Matter um, and kind of the the broader kind of um, critical race theory, equity, Ibram X. Kennedy paradigm, so easily kind of filled the niche, so easily kind of swooped in and kind of filled the void left by the fact that the that the Me Too movement so overstepped and failed. So I think it's it might be worth pondering for kind of uh, cultural critics, uh, sociologists, maybe people who specialize in this perhaps a little more. Than I do. Maybe the Emily Jashinskys of the world can, I don't know, can take a, can take, can like think a little harder as to like why exactly it is that that BLM seems to have had kind of a a, a longer kind of shelf life than than Me Too. Um, not entirely sure why that is, uh, but it's something to at least think about. Nobody likes women. <laughs> the obvious takeaway. Uh, how do I how do I follow up that comment? Um, <laughs> so I think the way that I sort of view this at a high level is that to the extent that this movement uh, brought creeps, horrible human beings to justice, that is an unalloyed good, no question about it. But it was inevitable that the attempt to politically exploit it 
would lead to a massive overreach that would have ultimately dire consequences. And we can weigh net on net the costs and benefits of the movement, you know, narrowly or broadly, depending on how we want to think about them. But you know, to Josh's point, I think that the apex of this was uh, the the attempt to destroy Brett Kavanaugh. And in some sense, that also destroyed the movement itself. It discredited it because the political actors couldn't help but overreach. They couldn't help themselves in trying to take what, again, was a just cause of bringing people who committed crimes, abused people, harassed people, and intimidated and silenced them into power uh, to justice. Again, a, a very positive thing. Um, but here, I, I'll never forget you know, Maisie Hirono going up there and telling men to shut up and sit down. That's a far, that's a pretty far step from you know, bring legitimately predatory men who've committed crimes to justice, to men should shut up, period, full stop. And also that essentially, and this is really kind of the level of justice, so-called on campus that exists today, where essentially it's the men are assumed guilty on college campuses. And like, what are the long-term consequences of that? What is it going to mean for the relationships between the sexes going forward? You know, relatedly, because it sort of falls within this realm, you know, there was an interesting piece uh, over at Barry Weiss's Substack on uh, the sugar babies of Stanford. And I think it tells you how far the pendulum has swung. And you have to ask whether, again, the, the costs outweigh the benefits. But on the narrow aspect of bringing horrible people to justice, victory. But to Rachel's point, I think well said, you know, the movement aid itself, political actors couldn't help but try to exploit it. And, you know, the traditional roles of the sexes have been so scrambled. I guess you could say the feminist movement was so successful in so far transcending its initial aims that now you have a society where everything has sort of been turned on its head in terms of the relationships between the sexes. And I can only imagine how that's ultimately going to play out. Maybe it'll lead to, again, the pendulum swinging back when we see the ultimate consequences of this for uh, individuals for families for children going forward that far transcends that more narrow issue of me too i think it is interesting to josh's point that race seems to have had a laster a longer lasting impact than sex in terms of the culture wars that have followed from these various movements the last thing i'll say is uh one other success in my view they would perceive it as a failure probably uh in terms of like me too transitioning then to women's march is that it illustrated it exposed the anti-Semitism, the Jew hatred latent in many of these progressive causes. So for the Women's March part of it, for exposing that, uh, I credit them, I guess. Thank you for exposing what's at the rotten core of progressivism. All right, so let's transition to a topic that uh, really bears no relation whatsoever to our previous topics. I'm not even going to pretend to make some sort of kind of slick producer-inspired transition here. So I want to talk about Ukraine. And uh, I want to talk about Ukraine because uh, I am just increasingly apoplectic, frankly, um, like really angry um, at, at the global narrative about Ukraine right now, and in particular, kind of what 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 is still the regime, the Biden regime's approach to Ukraine. What is the ruling class's approach? The generals, just kind of um, you know, all the kind of various bastions and edifices of elite opinion at this point. So, uh, to kind of set the table here, so. We are over seven months in to the latest kind of bout of contratemps between Russia and Ukraine. 
what I have said since day one of this conflict, I, I have, I have, I, I have literally, I think, uh, you know, I think on, on the record, I've been very consistent on this. The U.S.'s interest in this conflict is as between the two options of Zelensky, who was a, who was remarkably flawed, but as between Zelensky and the alternative, which is a Putin-installed Belarus-style Lukashenko puppet in Kiev, we pref we prefer Zelensky. Beyond that, as far as kind of the extreme regions of eastern Ukraine, Luhansk, Donetsk, Crimea, the Donbass, I'm sorry to say, but there is simply no vested American national security interest in the particular outcome there. First of all, it is very debatable as, as kind of like a matter of Eastern European, Slavic kind of world history, whether this, some of these particular regions, villages, towns on a town-by-town -town basis, it is very debatable whether some of them are best viewed as Ukrainian, Russian. A lot of them have large ethnic Russian populations there. Um, and it, it's just simply not even remotely obvious that the U.S. has a compelling national interest, compelling kind of security interest in which country in kind of the abstract on a blank slate these particular towns would, would choose to be with, whether it's uh, the blue and yellow flag or the red, white and blue flag of, of, of Russia. But nonetheless, I mean, for months and months now, the U.S. has just, has just continued to kind of uh, give off, you know, tens and tens of billions of dollars of aid, military equipment. And yet we've gone to the point now where uh, Putin uh, has staged what appears to be kind of sham referenda in, in, in a bunch of these villages. And, um, you know, he, 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 to, to me, what it, what it appears Putin is trying to do here is try to try to kind of declare victory or at least save face. The Russian economy has obviously been hit quite a bit by this, although the ruble, the currency actually has been doing quite good, which kind of shows the idiocy of the, of, of the Western sanctions uh, in, in many respects there. So it seems to me like with these sham referenda on these towns, Putin is possibly trying to kind of get an off-ramp for this conflict if only the West would take him up on this. I mean, Henry Kissinger has been saying this for months, going back to late May, early June. I think he was actually um, I, I think he was at, at the World Economic Forum, if, if, if I remember correctly, when, when, when Kissinger basically said, it's time to come to the negotiating table, return to the 2014 status quo ante. Crimea, by the way, obviously has been kind of disputed for at least uh, eight years going to 2014. But, you know, the, the reason I want to talk about this most dramatically is because on Monday, Elon Musk tweeted this. Elon Musk tweeted, I'm just reading from my phone here, Ukraine-Russia peace. So he's, he's proposing the peace terms here. Redo elections of annexed regions under UN supervision. Russia leaves if that is the will of the people. Crimea, formerly part of Russia, as it has been since 1783 until Khrushchev's mistake. Water supply to Crimea assured. Ukraine remains neutral. So the, the Ukraine remains neutral thing is, is, is really referring to NATO, right? Um, but no, nonetheless, the Biden administration is talking about possibly trying to fast track ascension to NATO for Ukraine. And it's just going to be the same damn thing playing all over again. So I, I am just so fed up with this at this point. From my perspective at this point, every single idiot who kind of gets up there with the, with the Ukraine lapel pin, talking about how it's the U.S.'s position to take back every single inch of disputed territory to the last Ukrainian we will send off. God knows how many U.S. taxpayer dollars to, to achieve and secure that end, you know, because Putin is Hitler, it's, it, it, it's Neville Chamberlain, it's Munich. I mean, guys, get a freaking grip. Just get a grip. I mean, Eastern European Slavic politics is messy stuff. And at this point, the U.S. interest is peace. It is 
de-escalation, detente, and peace. It is not arming Ukraine to the last man to take back every single depot or community center in in, in the freaking Donbass. So anyway, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox, but uh, I, I am just really peeved at the fact that, the, that this storyline just will not go away and that our leaders apparently have no particular interest in seeing it go away. I think the Kissinger point about the off-ramp is key here because, you know, traditionally this is how we've dealt with autocrats going back all the way to the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? You, They have to thump their chest in public. They have to talk big. But at the end of the day, the goal here is to avoid a nuclear escalation, period, full stop. And we don't seem to be interested in pursuing that. It was Dan Gore had an interesting piece in the National Interest yesterday where he even said, look, like the Russian playbook, Putin's been very clear, if he feels his state is existentially threatened, their playbook says they will use nuclear weapons. On the other hand, anyone who has been doing high-level NATO war games suggests that even if Putin attacks with nuclear weapons, NATO will not respond in kind. So, like, what are we doing here? Like, what are we actually, <laughs> what are we actually doing? Uh, and, and what is the end game here? That's what's always been unclear to me, specifically because for all the talk about Russia being this sort of existential threat to the West, I am not completely convinced that Russia, outside of the sort of territorial disputes on its border, has the ability to go beyond that. Not to say that people in Ukraine aren't suffering, not to say all these you know things aren't worth talking about, but at the end of the day, Russia is a dying petrostate, right? It, it, it cannot have territorial ambitions that large. China, on the other hand, is a completely different question and one where we should be having, you know, these kind of conversations because that is a country that we could end up in in an escalation like this with drastic results. So I've always wondered why this the Russia question is sucking all the oxygen out of the room. Not to say it's not a threat to, to Europe, but that's Europe needs to be engaging much more, I think, than we are at this point. Well, and similarly, if we were in a situation where China were like the Soviet Union throughout the Cold War in a position to create this massive swath of the Earth's land, Russia, as a satellite state, then yeah, there maybe there's there's reason to sort of um, you know be pushing this hard over the Donbas, uh, which again I understand an invasion of a, a sovereign country, the suffering um, that has come as the, uh, as a result of this war. I mean, it's unconscionable. There's there's no justification for it. Um, but but this is not a situation where we have a lot of really good evidence that Russia, I mean, Russia is cooperating with China. Uh, we, we absolutely know that they're friendly with China, but it doesn't seem to be the case that China's turning this huge, huge chunk of land um, into a satellite state where we should be, you know, super concerned about or, or have the same type of security concerns about an incursion into the rest of the European continent um, by the sort of first domino, by thinking of the Donbass as the first domino. Um, so I think Josh is pointing to what Kissinger has said is kind of interesting, especially coming from Kissinger. And, and it's it's a, a good kind of, I, I think, indication of where a lot of, you know, at, at the moment, more sober-minded uh, people who have some distance from the, from the situation um, even people like that see, I mean, it's like Kissinger and Chomsky are on the same page. I don't know. <laughs> so, you know, this is obviously a complex situation and that you have all of these competing actors within nations and then collectively uh, each with their own angles here and their perceptions of the other powers that they're dealing with obviously govern what their own responses are. I think that at a high level, the important thing to note is that there doesn't seem to be any appetite, despite what you would view as probably the successes 
of the Ukraine buttressed by the full power of the Western world, essentially, against Russia. There doesn't seem to be any desire to get to a de-escalation and a strategic negotiation between the parties. Why is that the case on our side? It's dumbfounding. Uh, it's costing us to the extent that we've massively drained our strategic petroleum reserve. Uh, we're obviously funding to the tune of tens of billions of dollars Ukraine, and there doesn't seem to be any end in sight to those dollars that we're committing. We've been draining our own weapons stockpiles to supply them, of course, are involved on the intelligence side of things. And then you have actually mobilizations, basic mobilizations at low levels of Russia's nuclear forces in recent days, various aspects of it. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any desire on the part of the West to say, let's get to the negotiating table right now. You can save face, Vladimir Putin, however you'd like to save face. Um, but we ought to return to you know something of a, a ceasefire here and a cessation of tensions. Instead, the rhetoric seems to be infinitely more heated. Um, so the rhetoric and the action combined lead to a literally combustible situation. You saw U.S. officials talking sort of with glee about the destruction in the Nord Stream pipelines that we talked about last week. And that may well be a good thing long term. Obviously, you don't want to have levers of power for Russia to have over Europe in terms of turning the oil spigot literally on or off and letting people freeze or not. It'd be great if Europe diversified its energy sources. It'd be great if they bought our oil, liquefied natural gas as well. But there's a question of at what cost and where does this ultimately end? Um, and to the last point, yes, this is a huge diversion from Russia's senior partner in the senior junior relationship with communist China. Communist China gets to see how we operate in this situation which may or may not prove a template for Taiwan. But meanwhile, we continue to draw down our resources and potentially end up embroiled in a far greater conflict here. And you wonder when are cooler heads going to prevail? And I don't see it right now. And so you have to ask the question, qui bono at the end of the day? Who, who benefits from this? And it is worth noting, you already have people on the Western side talking about a rebuilding effort in Ukraine. And you know that is going to be a massive grift ultimately. So this is just disastrous all around. It'd be great if cooler heads would prevail and we would get to a negotiating table now that Putin really has been repelled. Well, on that note, we can move into final thoughts and I'm, I can kick it off. I want to come back to actually a uh, final thought I had on my segment, which I think goes to this broader discussion of elites screwing up the country and again and again and again, right? And it goes to something Ben mentioned about, you know, the most we know about EcoHealth Alliance and what will be done about it and what will be done about Anthony Fauci boils down to sort of these made for YouTube moments of oversight at congressional hearings. And I think this really speaks to the burden that's on congressional Republicans should they take any kind of majority in the House or the Senate. You know, they they've indicated that oversight will be a key part of their agenda. And that's fine. I'm all for oversight. But at the end of the day, like, what are you going to do about it? And I've made this point in several other contexts, probably too on this podcast, that that like the January 6th select committee opened up a wide, like cavernous amount of precedents that can be used by House Republicans. Like they are using Congress to punish people. And, you know, this is a point that I made in my NatCon speech. Like conservatives have to be willing to bring that fight to the Democrats, not out of this like partisan retaliation, but out of survival. 
right? Like the, you, you see people blatantly willing to call for social media, you know, call for social media censorship, call for their opponents to be taken offline, denied access to public life, uh, jailed or otherwise comfortable enough to give again federal money to the people that started the COVID-19 pandemic and not care who notices because they know they will never be punished. And so I think there has to be this next step among congressional and the political right in particular to say, okay, it's not just we're going to thump our chests at you at a hearing. We are going to use the precedent set by Democrats to really do a full investigation and say, this is not acceptable behavior. People will be fired. People will be held accountable. Funding will be withheld. Uh, whatever they have to do, you know, there has to be some accountability for what people have suffered from these incredibly flawed decisions. People have to be subject to the consequences of their actions. Otherwise, this is never going to stop. And again, people aren't going to put up with it. And that's the dangerous part of this moment. You keep beating people and you keep pushing them into a corner. At some point, they're going to hit you back. And that's a natural human reaction. That is not a sustainable form of self-government. <laughs> so this is something that I think, you know, you hate to put the burden on these guys, but they've got to do it. This is a moment such a time as this kind of thing that they have to stand up and act. So I guess I'll just briefly, very briefly touch on the other topic that I was thinking of doing my seven on this week, which is this is the start of the Supreme Court term. So the Supreme Court uh, started its 2021, 2022, 2023. I can't, I can't even keep track of the years at this point. Um, they started their new term on Monday. Uh, there are a bunch of high-profile cases, maybe not quite. I mean, the slate of blockbuster cases the last term saw, that was really kind of like a once-a-decade, once-a-generation term, as we've discussed at Infinite and on this podcast. But, you know, there are at least three other – I mean, there are more. But there are like three other kind of, from my perspective, like marquee kind of like first-rate issues that come immediately to mind. The first are the two affirmative action cases. So this is out of out of Harvard and the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So you get kind of both the private and the public school there. The question, uh, which the court most recently directly confronted in the Fisher case of Texas, but most recently kind of upheld the constitutionality of explicitly in, in the Grutter case of 2003, the question there is whether uh, race-based criteria um, in university admissions process is compatible with the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. Um, there is also a major free speech case is being tried as a free speech case, not a religious liberty case out of the state of Colorado. So this is the 303 creative LLC case. So it's, it's kind of a very similar paradigm to a lot of this similar kind of religious liberty litigation. It's it's not quite a bake the damn cake bigot case. It's um uh, it, it, it's uh, in this case, the plaintiff is a Christian woman who has a website design site. Uh, Same-sex couple wants to kind of use her services to design the wedding. You know how this goes. So the 10th Circuit, the lower court there, ruled 2-1 against her. But there was a really, really, really compelling dissent by Timothy Timkovich, who's probably the best judge on the 10th Circuit. Um, I, I, I do predict that dissent will actually become prescient and will ultimately be vindicated as, as uh, the law of the land, as they say. It makes very little sense to me why the Supreme Court would grant cert in that particular case um, if they didn't actually plan to make a definitive ruling. Because uh, in, in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the somewhat similar case also out of Colorado four years or four years ago now, four and a half years ago, you know, they had a very narrow ruling, kind of minuscule procedure grounds that kind of kicked the can down the road. So the mere fact that they kind of granted cert here leads me to believe that they are prepared to make a slightly more definitive ruling. Then the final case is the Voting Rights Act case out of Alabama. Uh, you know, the particular details of that case are maybe a little too arcane for this lawsuit, but it involves kind of racial gerrymandering. And I guess kind of combining that case with the affirmative action cases, 
it seems to me that the, that the court this term has a golden opportunity to, and dare I say, if I can muster a modicum of uh, rare judicial optimism, I think seems quite possibly poised to actually rule in decisive kind of colorblind fashion in both the Voting Rights Act case and the affirmative action cases, and basically tries to get race as far out of our law as possible. And the very idea of getting race so far out of our law as possible, whether it's whether it's in a gerrymandering the Voting Rights Act context or in the affirmative action context or anything else, you know, the idea of getting race out of politics and law is quite countercultural these days, right? Because uh, the progressive left, the Wokarates, the Kendi, CRT crowd, they want race to, to imbue everything we do. So if the court can actually kind of stand its ground in those cases in particular and try to kind of read colorblindness into the Voting Rights Act and gerrymandering as well as just once and for all end the systemic racism of, of affirmative action, they would be really, really, really doing a solid and I think really, really, really stopping the ascension of this deeply insidious race-centric woke ideology as well. I'll just say really briefly, um, before we started taping, we learned sadly that Loretta Lynn had died at the age of 90 years old, one of the greatest uh, poets, one of the greatest American artists that the country has ever seen. And it's sad, but she lived a, a very long and a really incredible life. And um, she, she's well known, I think, in sort of the in, in, in cultural circles in in art circles uh for the pill which a lot of progressives really like to talk about it's a she, she had a very popular song that was you know questionable at country radio at the time which was a very big deal because country radio used to be and still is the gatekeepers um and more than other uh, genres at least and uh, the lyrics for the pill are really interesting i have them up on the screen here um and I think they're really interesting in light of the Me Too conversation that we had earlier. She says, you wind me and dine me when I was your girl, promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your breeder house because now I've got the pill. Um, and it, it's a it's a very, very interesting perspective on the pill um, at a time when I think people are suddenly starting to, to question uh, the acceptance of a lot of these quick technologies that changed things really fast. But I, I think it's worth um, for people who are involved in that discussion, as I, I often talk about those things, to remember um, that nobody wants to roll back the clock right to to 1950, that uh, there, there have been, um, and, and especially for women of less privilege, um, and, and women in lower income communities with less social capital and less resources, um, you know, there, there have been a lot of, I'm not talking about the pill specifically, but um, there, there have been changes in domestic violence, there have been changes in uh, family formation, there have been big changes that have happened really quickly, but some of them have been for the good. And um, I, I, I think, you know, it's, it's always worth remembering that. And I look forward to a lot of the remembrances of Loretta Lynn as this week goes on. So I just want to return briefly to uh, the whole concept of quote unquote gender affirming care and just point out that it's so striking how devoted the left is to this cause. And that's from the DOJ, which, by the way, has has already put out directives in the past saying that it would protect gender affirming care efforts, so-called within the states. You have teachers who are being directed by their various educational authorities to essentially advise kids to consider transitioning behind their parents' back. And then you have these medical associations as well. 
now in on the act. It's just striking how devoted they are to this cause. And you have to ask yourself why, why this particular issue? And I think there, there are a couple aspects of it worth pondering. You know, one is that this creates a wedge between children and their parents. And the progressive left has always sought to break down those bonds because it aids them in their revolution and increases the powers of the institutions that seek to indoctrinate them. Uh, another aspect is that this is about essentially transcending or shrugging off our literal nature. Uh, also, I think, you know, perfectly reflect, reflective of the progressive cause, which essentially puts man in the place of God and essentially says that the natural world as it is, you can transcend that and you can do whatever you want. You are all powerful as a being and you should even deny your own basic biology uh, as a consequence of it. And then the last part of it, of course, using the power of the police to try to impose this on people. I, I think it shows you that there's just, there's nothing, nothing is sacred. There is no boundary they will not cross. There is no power they will not use in service of their revolution. And so once again, that leads to the question for us of what do we do about it? How do you respond when your political opponent is willing to do anything to dominate. That's that's the question we try to answer or at least explore every single week here. And I think it's a, it's the critical question and the critical one to answer because that is the meta narrative that transcends pretty much every conversation we're having here. Well, I think on that note, we had everything from Loretta Lynn to gender affirming care to nuclear weapons because we have it all folks. So... <laughs> <laughs> So on behalf of Emily, Ben, and Josh, I am Rachel Bovard, and we will see you on the next NatCon Squad.